When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. Hello, and welcome to the Game Maker's Notebook. My name is Robin Hunnicky, and I'll be your host today. I'm going to be speaking with Emily Greer, who's got a new startup she's going to be telling you about, Making Games Made with Love. But we're also going to talk about her experience, understanding how people purchase, looking at the ways people play, and thinking about building a better marketplace for games and for players as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Here she is. Welcome to The Game Maker's Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Maker's Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. Welcome, welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back <laughs> to, the, to the Game Maker's Notebook. I'm Robin Hunnicky, and of course, I'm uh, doing this interview in the place of Ted Price. Sometimes I'm allowed to do these interviews in the place of Ted Price. Um, I'm here at Dice, and uh, that's in lovely Las Vegas, Vegas, Vegas. And I'm sitting across the table from Emily Greer. And Emily, I would like you to introduce yourself to our audience. Uh, Hi, I'm uh, Emily Greer. As mentioned, I am the co-founder and CEO of the recently announced Double Loop Games. And then, um, but what most people know me from and of is that I was the co-founder of Congregate and CEO for many years. So that's been almost my entire time in the game industry. That's amazing. And Congregate, I mean, revolutionary in so many ways. How did you get to Congregate? Tell us about that part of your your life. Yeah, so I came into games in a very sideways uh, way that involves some nepotism. Uh, (laughs) Totally unheard of in our industry. (laughs) Uh, So I grew up playing games with my brother. Um, We would go to the arcades in Austin, Texas. And when he would let me play on the computer in his his room. Um, I played Load Runner and, you know, Ultima, etc. Um, he went away to college and I went away to college and then I stopped playing games and I didn't know what I want to do. So I was like, and I did freshman Eastern European studies wow. and I did my college thesis on 15th century Transylvania. What? And then I was like, yeah, I need to earn some money and this isn't the way to do it. So I was briefly in book publishing and then I realized I didn't like choosing things for other people on a subjective basis. It made me very stressed. Yeah, that is a stressful job. And especially when other people's money was involved. Um, So I was like... Picking winners is hard. Yeah. And it was, you know, at 22, it was very... I did not enjoy it. And so... But I stumbled into direct marketing and catalog marketing, uh, which is very, basically it's data science and UA before it was called data science and UA. (laughs) That makes sense. And, And there's like this whole like 
you know, 100-year history of um, companies like Land's End and L.L. Bean creating yeah. databases and m creating models of who they should mail catalogs to and running A-B tests. And I really, really enjoyed thinking about people. Yeah, the data science of it. using data understand and yeah. using the combination of like human psychology and data. But, um, you know, I never actually thought about that before. Like mm -hmm. this is the first time I've ever actually really thought about mm -hmm. that the LLB catalog maybe that came to our house would have been different mm -hmm. than someone else's. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, that's kind it, of mind-blowing territory. It was. It was. Uh, um, why, also, why is our LL Bean all filled with purple and glitter, Robin? Yeah. <laughs> Catalog printing plants are amazing. That's amazing. Like, uh, like, like the coolest place, almost one of the coolest places I've ever been. That's it's cool. like mind-blowing. But the problem was, is like, I really enjoyed that job and I did it for a while and, and then e-commerce and all of that. But uh, a couple things, I got bored. And the other thing is I felt really guilty about cutting down trees to sell people things. Yeah. Uh, and I thought, well, maybe I'll go to grad school in econ. And <laughs> I worked towards that for a while and even applied and then got disenchanted and decided I didn't want to do that. And then... What led to the disenchantment? Just, um, just that like, oh God, economy? <laughs> like it's no, just hard? No. So, 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 um, so one is... Um, I had to catch up a lot of math um, okay. um, to do it, which I actually really enjoyed. And it's, with, yeah, it's a lot of difficult, right? Yeah. Um, so I did like essentially I was working part time and I did the equivalent of like a math minor at Cal. And then I was cool. also taking econ classes. And I got as I got to higher level econ classes, I got very frustrated with the attitude of the professors um, about actual real world data. Um, Explain. And, and well, first of all, I was told that in the application process for grad school that mm -hmm. the fact that I had been in business for multiple years was a negative on my resume. Whoa. And that what they would, re you know, what their ideal candidate was somebody who would maybe been a physics major in college. Wow. And, and then maybe, maybe intern for the Fed or something. But <laughs> like they, they wow. wanted somebody who had not experienced the real world, which I was like. That's weird. That's yeah. weird. Um, and then I was in a class with a famous macroeconomics professor whose name I won't say. Okay. Uh, but he like worked for the Clinton administration, is well, well known. Yeah, someone who knows Who things. knows things. And he, he told a story about just-in-time inventory type of thing and created this example of him buying a dress at his, for his daughter mm -hmm. at a particular store, April Cornell. Um, and how the replacement dress was being manufactured in, in China. Not true. Right. <laughs> and, and would be there like the next week and how this was going to change the economy in all sorts of ways. And I was polite enough that I didn't like raise my hand in class and tell him he was full of shit. Sorry. Can I say that? <laughs> you can, yes. <laughs> um, I swear like a pirate on the podcast. Yeah. That's <laughs> uh, and then, uh, but I went up to him afterwards and told him like, because I had been in in essentially yeah. in retail and, and clothing manufacturing. And I knew a lot about it. And I was like, you know, that story you told, it's never like, there's about six different reasons why it would never happen that way. Like, you know, clothing manufacturing is a two-step process between fabric and clothing. There's minimums for factories. Um, there's shipping time. Yeah. There's seasonality of what is somebody going to want. Is, yeah. Yes. Is, you're not going to want the same dress in two months by the time it shifts over. Various reasons why it was. And he interrupted me um, uh, and said, waved his hand and said, oh. details, details, and didn't want to hear wow. that. And that was really yeah. shocking to me and made me really question, 
to be honest, the economics profession yeah. and and sort of the overall attitude. And I think it was part of the they they wanted that they wanted people who could do math, but not tell them that their models might be wrong. Yeah. And uh, and yeah, it's like abstract thinkers who can confirm my personal armchair theories about how people work. Right. right? And they wanted they wanted so badly for it to be a science that they were rejecting all the complexity of yeah. human life. You and know, it's human funny. Behavior. It's funny that you say that because I had the exact same experience with artificial intelligence in the early nineties. So oh, I, interesting. I, yeah. So, I mean, I did a master's and almost a PhD in artificial mm -hmm. intelligence and robotics, but I had a lot of very frustrating conversations, especially with people in machine learning and knowledge representation where they really wanted to believe that like, they could make a blanket mm -hmm. statement about how all people remember things like everything is a story in yeah. your brain or everything is just a signal and then, then some signals result yeah. in a, an impression. And it's like you, neither of you are actual brain scientists yeah. and neither of you have actually spent that much time around normal people because you're always in the building. And I know <laughs> that we are not normal. <laughs> like We are not neurotypical people. So the way that our brains work is maybe not the way that everyone else's brains work. And it was very difficult. I remember having conversations with people about like mm -hmm. uh, just like – is there such a thing as creativity? Like, is there such a thing as inspiration? Is there such a thing as the muse? And like, they would just be like, why are you talking about this religious weirdness? <laughs> and I'm like, I didn't say anything about <laughs> Jesus Christ. I was just wondering if you thought maybe sometimes people got inspired randomly by things happening in their brain that they couldn't predict and that you couldn't predict, predict. and that you right. couldn't model. Right. And the answer was always, that's not a problem. It was the same thing. That's once the machines get fast enough, we'll be able to solve all the problems. And now you look at machine learning algorithms and the way that they're like, in many ways, inherently classist, racist, sexist. They have all these weird assumptions Such about people. Mm -hmm. And you go, oh, well, yeah, of course, right? Yeah. Because they're not spending time with the actual people that mm -hmm. the algorithms are evaluating. So yeah. I imagine it's probably a very similar problem. Yeah, I, I, I think so. And, you know, there were some other factors there, but it was, it was, I remember having, remember thinking, I think I could do good research. Um, and I think I would enjoy that. But I think that I, I I applied and I hadn't gotten into either Cal or Stanford, and I was like, I don't I don't think I want to put myself through this, and I want to stay in the Bay Area more than I want to do this, yeah. and I think I'm 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 done. And um, and then you were like, okay, <laughs> okay, I then have these two totally disparate careers. What do I do now? Yeah, and it was like, what do I do with what? So what do I do? And um, I continued working and kind of cataloging commerce stuff, but then my brother who had had. Um, he uh, dropped out of college to work to work on Ultima Seven. Oh, cool! Um, and uh, he had been in games that That's whole old time. School. Yeah, yeah uh, that game is great, by the way. If you haven't played it; it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and he had he had left Origin with some other folks and started a studio that had a, a game called Netstorm Islands at War, uh -huh. which was published by Activision and later uh, named by CNET the number one game of all time that nobody bought. Oh, wow! <laughs> and there uh, and there were some uh, you know some harsh feelings towards Activision um, mm -hmm. uh, about how things went down and that uh, studio ended up uh, failing. But that was actually probably foretold from the start because it was, was called, say, it was called Titanic Entertainment. Yes. <laughs> and their, uh, their business card said, serving drinks till the ship sinks. <laughs> Uh, it's like maybe the studio is not going to survive, right? Like, <laughs> also unheard of in our industry, studios with really weird names that make you think of bad things that mm -hmm. go out of business because of bad marketing. Yeah. Um, but actually, one of the most uh, the, the sort of most funny and like tragicomic stories about it is that they had the this was like 
like 1997 mm-hmm. era, I think, when the game came out. And they had the Titanic.com, like that URL, wow. that domain, right about the time that the movie was coming out. Oh, my gosh. And the uh, they accidentally let it lapse and didn't sell oh, it. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> yeah. the follies of being so interested in your game that you yeah. think of nothing else. Yeah, you forget it. Yeah, forget about that. Anyway, um, but he had come out to the Bay Area and was working um, in browser games at mm-hmm. EA's Pogo. And he... Um, was thinking about starting a new studio and thinking about all the problems of um, independent developers have with distribution um, and keeping the rights of their games and connecting with consumers. And this was right around the time that YouTube came out and he was like, oh, you can do a platform where people can upload and you could do this and you can bring in all this great social stuff. So um, he had the idea for Congregate, and which was a platform um, where anybody could upload a game um, and that we would wrap it with uh, social and other features and make it a much richer experience yeah. and like share revenue with developers in which a fair and transparent way. Revolutionary at never, the time. Yeah, never. No one was even thinking about this. Like I remember those times and certainly nobody was thinking about that. So right? the, yeah, the, the closest that um, um, that was out there, and we didn't actually know about it at the time. We, we later discovered uh, Newgrounds, which is an amazing, you know, kind of original, um, you know, user uploaded community. But it was very like it was a mix of games and animations yeah. and it was not it was it was uh had no commercial it was just a fan no community rubbery. yeah it was yeah. a fan community i used to play games on Newgrounds all yeah, the time yeah so this was um uh so we were so we were thinking about it but from the perspective of actually making a living and developers <laughs> actually being able to have studios and succeed and not give up the rights of their games yeah. and not be having to pitch everything and it was a it was a dream so what happened was so he had the idea, and uh, he was very excited about it. And my now sister-in-law, uh, his then-girlfriend, said, you can quit your job if Emily thinks it's a good idea. <laughs> and I, I'm not quite sure why she said that, but I think she she, she was like, I think Emily is the person in his life most likely to tell him uh, he's got a terrible idea. <laughs> and Because I told him many times that yeah. things were terrible ideas. Uh, he called me up, and I was like, uh, and told me about it. I was like, no, that's a really good idea. And I think you should do it. Yeah. And he, we had that conversation at like 7.30 a.m., 8 a.m., and he quit his job two hours later. <laughs> the power of a wise sister. <laughs> well, he was very enthusiastic. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. And then what happened was, so he, he, uh, he was an engineer, and uh, he asked for my help on the business plan. And yeah. so I was working with him on that. And after a few weeks, I was like, this is so much more fun than what I'm doing. And I... Like, I love to play games. I, I don't know about the game industry, but I know that I know about marketing and yeah. financials and lots of other things. And that I'm just like like a pragmatic, sort of detail-oriented person who can be a good balance with you. So do you want a co-founder? And mm-hmm. he said yes. And mm-hmm. uh, um, then I quit my job. And then suddenly I was in games. And, <laughs> so exciting. Yeah. And then the funny thing was, is that I thought, oh, I'm going to be doing something completely different. Um, yeah. And, you know, a little bit at first I was, but then as the game industry has developed, it's become much and more and more about data yeah. and uh, and analysis, and then you know when we got into mobile user acquisition and other things. So it, like more and more, it came back to I had started off with this one career that 
at the one I that initially seemed totally irrelevant, but became extraordinarily relevant and very yeah. useful. Yeah. Um, and um, and one where I got to do all the things that I'd enjoyed about catalog without but, the trees, <laughs> but without yeah, without killing the trees, in with something that I believed in. Um, yeah. You know, uh, helping independent developers succeed, and then just I got to play games and really think about games yeah. and uh, get part back to what had been a part of my childhood that was wonderful and important to me that I'd sort of lost along the way. So um, that was, yeah, that was how I got into games, which is a very long story, but. (laughs) It's actually, it's great because like, so what age were you when you did that? Like how how old were you then? uh, Let's see, I turned 32 two weeks after I quit my job. So I I started working at EA when I was 32 years old. So people, a lot of people don't know that. Mm -hmm. And I think my, my career had a similar trajectory and that I was really interested in games and then I went way far into computer science and then mm-hmm. realized that computer science was not going to be a place where a person that was creative like me yeah. could really survive and ended up back in games almost by accident. Same thing, like went to a computer science conference and then happened to go to a games conference right after and then met the right person. And then one thing led to another and it's, it wasn't totally nepotism, but it was definitely friends <laughs> of friends, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Some of whom worked on Ultima and oh. your brother, right? Oh, so yeah. Zach Simpson was one of those oh, people. Yeah, That's right. Yeah. So we have, so, yeah, we have so, those early friends in common. It, it, in yeah. Ways. Well, Zach, I I mean, I've known Zach since I was eight years old, something like that. So (laughs) yeah, some of those arcade days. So you, uh, you're you at Congregate and you're starting to build this platform mm-hmm. and you're getting people kind of building games and mm-hmm. putting them up and then there's like a little marketplace that's that's developing. Mm-hmm. How did it how did it evolve um, when you look back at it now? Um, what, what do you see as like the phases of it? Because I think a lot of... What I would say to sort of tee that up is that a lot of people are talking right now at the conference, for example, um, Tim Sweeney talked about it in his keynote about Roblox and Minecraft and, you know, new marketplaces for games and the ways that they can help creators, which is basically your mission from them. Like, yeah. what is your take on that, you know? Yeah, I mean, one thing is we were, we were you know, the, the Flash game scene um, in the, uh, you know, early 2000s through, say, 2012 was mm-hmm. like an incredible rich and vibrant place. And I'm going to give a call out to uh, a talk that uh, John Cooney did um, at GDC a few years ago. It's up on YouTube for, uh, for free called the Flash Game Pars- P- Postmortem. It's we- great, actually. Yeah. And it's it's a great talk that talks about a lot of the, the history of Flash games and how it's really the origin of indie games as we know them. And also really important in... To, in bringing, like, making the game industry accessible to people all over the world um, in a way that it really hadn't been before. So it's hard to separate the growth of Congregate from and from the growth of the Flash scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we were really influential in that essentially we were, you know, some of the, about the first people to come in and say, uh, Flash game devs deserve to earn money, Money, right? It had been a very much a sort of a fan driven uh, culture where, uh, you know, entrepreneurs were sort of shadily putting up, you know, very quick HTML sites, stealing Swift files from wherever they could find it, plastering ads all over it taking all of the money and none of that was going to, to the, developers. the de- developers. And, you know, when we came in, we said, no, if we're making money on ads, you should get money on, you should make money on ads. And we're not going to steal games. Like if you want a game on our site, 
you should put it up yourself. Yeah. Right. And because we are sharing revenue and doing all of these things, we, you know, hopefully you will put it up. Yeah. And um, we were totally right about that. I remember um, that uh, I think we did a closed alpha starting in like October of 2006, which is only five months after we quit our yeah, jobs. That, yeah, that, I was going to say that's literally like, yeah, I'd only been at work for, yeah, yeah. six months. Probably. Yeah, it was really, it was, I mean, it was really fast and it was, it was really rough and it, we weren't letting people broadly in, but we started inviting, inviting developers in because we were like, you need developers before you need, yeah. like you need games first, right? Yeah. I remember the first week we got 25 games and we were just oh, kind man. of blown away <laughs> and over the moon um, at, you know, both that like, that, and we're like, oh, this, this might work, right? Yeah. Uh, and and then like six months later, you've got thousands of games and mm-hmm. oh yeah. my gosh. And it took off very quickly. Um, and I mean, we weren't the only people who were saying um, you deserve to make money at your games because the other startup that was right at the same time that I think was very important and influential is Mochi Media, mm. um, which is no, no longer. And they had a system where Flash game devs could put code in their game. So wherever it got stolen, oh, it could run ads it. and yeah. they could see the analytics and, and start to have some control of their game mm. after it was stolen. Wow. Um, and so... What a weird idea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm going to put a virus of, in my own game so that I can track it later and maybe make some money off of it right? <laughs> when it's been but pirated. It, yeah. And it's... Um, yeah, the Flash game scene. Was, it was weird. Very flexible. Yes. And very viral because of it. So, yeah. So what happened um, was we very quickly got developers on board and I don't I, I don't remember exactly when the inflection point was but it was essentially you know every month we were getting more and more games and by 2008 I think we were averaging you know a thousand new games per month yeah. um, it got up to like 1500 1800 I can't even remember where where, yeah. where where it got but it was you know people talk about Steam being really, really crowded and, you know, there's so many games on there. But I think it's still like six or 7,000 uploaded per year. And we were getting 13, 15,000 back, yeah. you know, um, you know, in 2009. Yeah, that's like that. The, so did you find that the power curve was involved there as well? That was there the 80-20 rule where like 80% of it was just like garbage and no one played it. And then 20% was like earning. Yes, only um, I would call it like an 80 80- 21, <laughs> 80, 19, one yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of rule where 80, 80% was garbage that nobody played at all. Yeah. Um, 20%, maybe a little bit less got played some, and then, and then you know, a very small percentage of, uh, of really good games got the vast, vast majority of the plays. And then at some point you transitioned from being that service to a publisher, right? Like you started picking those games up and putting them out, right? Yeah. So so what happened, um, there's a couple couple things in between. So one is that we, from the start of Congregate, we believed that free, like that the industry was going to transition substantially to free-to-play. Yeah. Um, and that was actually really early because it was like, it was happening in Asia, but it mm-hmm. really was, you know, there was like a little bit with Second Life and then a little bit with like browser. MMOs in Europe, but it was not yet happening in the West. But you know, Jim really was like, "This is it's a thing. It's it's a thing, and it's going to happen." So we had all of these free games, but we were like, "We want to create a system for um, 
uh, players to be able to charge for in-app purchases. Mm -hmm. And so we built that out and we launched it in 2008, wow. which was really early and so early that there was not really any games for it. Yeah. We'd, we'd, we'd funded some and they were... Uh, uh, good games, but we didn't know anything about IP. They didn't know anything about IP. Yeah, it was, it was the blind platform. leading the blind. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it, because it was an open platform, um, after about nine or ten months, a team up from Vancouver called um, Emerald City Games, and they're uh, uploaded an indie MMO that started to take off, and we're like, oh, oh, and learned from it. They're still in business and, and doing well, uh, and which is great. I saw them a few like a year or so ago, hmm. and and then we started to figure out okay, these are the kinds of game. This this is a one template for a game that could work, and we started went out and looked and encouraged other developers that had games we thought might work yeah. um, would come on. We we uh, got a lot of games over from China um, that were browser games, and then. Uh, the Facebook platform was starting to take off, so we got some of those, and then and it just sudden and suddenly we had like a thousand free to play games, and we had this great data set for me to look at and be Yay. like, this is how free to play could work. Like, <laughs> what's going on? Like, yeah. how? Like, who's spending? What games? Why? What are the different patterns? And I was able to go in and like do your detective work. Yeah, and it was it was really fun to be honest. That's and, great. And 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 let me bring let me think back to some of those economics principles and things that I had learned when I was on that sort of side mission and um so we so we became kind of a like on top of the browser games platform a free to play destination. And then around this there was a couple things going on in this period which is kind of we'll call this 2009 to 2012. Um so Steve Jobs declared war on flash. Oh um, wow, yeah. Uh which while it's taken a long time for for that to to wind out, was yes. the beginning of the end yeah. for Flash. It's being deprecated from the web. I had a conversation with someone two days ago where they said that yeah. deprecating Flash from the web. Yeah, and I was, I was like, like oh, yeah, it hurts silent a little tear bit for little game developers. <laughs> it does. Uh, and then, uh, so it's actually Steve Jobs in two ways because it was iPhone and killing flash mm -hmm. and as you know once there was now a really great device for playing games on mobile the mobile market started changing and a lot of like uh we were like oh our players are yeah, starting are, are starting to move to, to to mobile well we didn't think that like browser was going to die and it, it certainly hasn't no. there's still quite a bit uh going on in browser we 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 wanted to also do mobile initially we did something called congregate arcade where mm -hmm. we tried to do on android with like flashlight and kind of do a congregate like experience uh and we got a lot of installs for it i think we got like two million installs wow. um with and 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 google was actively hostile to, to, to it <laughs> uh and but it like the games were really unstable and there wasn't any like way we weren't making any money and we were like there's just a real and we could never put it on iOS and we were like we can't be the platform um, on mobile because no, we have to be the content because because Apple and Google are the platforms and there's you know we, we just need to accept that um, but we sort of thought back to okay w our core mission is to help independent develop game developers um, succeed and uh, succeed monetize connect them to other players and we we're like we can still do that on mobile it's just as a publisher and that was a really big shift for us because you know we were we were formed out of kind of an 
anti-publisher feeling out yeah. of my brother's yeah. bad experience. Yeah. So to say, like, no, we could be a publisher was like it took us a little while to yeah, get there to get comfortable with the idea of being yeah. A um, but then once we decided to do it, um, you know, we'd been working with developers at Congregate and building up a lot of trust and relationships over that. So um, when we said, okay, we we're going to ready to be a mobile publisher. Um, and we can bring all of this free-to-play knowledge, knowledge um, to bear. We had a lot of congregate developers in particular yeah. who were like, "Yes, I want to work with That's you. Please help. Will. You know, like, yeah. please help me help us make the transition." And so we got. Uh, we had been bought by GameStop at that point, and we got uh, permission from GameStop to essentially use all of our profits from the web mm -hmm. um, for one year to, to start the publishing business. Start a publishing business. You know, we had a pretty strict budget and. Um, other things um, and we lost exactly the amount of amount, amount we, were, <laughs> we were it was like we were allowed to lose two million and uh, we lost one million nine hundred and seventy five thousand we were we, we, we like we, we really maxed it but you were taking those bets and you were placing those bets based on this entire career of sort of looking at how people buy essentially right yeah and we were we were doing it also based on our experience of what we were seeing on Congregate in terms of what are the good teams, what are the good games. So a lot of our earliest hits were either, you know, sequels of games that had been successful on Congregate. Mm -hmm. um, actually, I'd say that's probably half of our first ones were, were mobile sequels of games that had been successful on Congregate. And then we already knew a lot about the teams and had a relationship with them. So that yeah. was a real so kickstart. it de-risked it for you, really. It de-risked it. I mean, we didn't know it was going to work, but... But but we we had a much better shot, and we also had you know the congregate audience also to help us kind of kickstart things, yeah. and you know um, we pretty quickly formed good relationships with Apple and Google because it was you know they want to meet with every single developer but, and hat, yeah. but they, they 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 can't do it, and we had you know congregate.com essentially was like was a great funnel where yeah. we could discover talent for them and then come in and be like oh look at this great team from Argentina yeah. let look at this great team from Italy yeah. Right, people that they wouldn't normally—they were never going to run into them at Dice or no, like at a conference. But yeah. the the wonderful Flash ecosystem had allowed them to kind of kind of bubble up to the top, and um, and so we so we got to know them. So so this idea of like having having an understanding of like what the customers are actually doing as, as opposed to like a model in your head. Like as you started moving to mobile publishing, I feel like you've you've told me that you started to notice some trends in mobile publishing around content and what what was playable and what was being offered versus what you would play, right? Yeah. And so we, we, we were joking a little bit before the podcast. I was saying, I think we should talk a little bit about, <laughs> about the category, which is rosé games. <laughs> so games that Emily and I would play while drinking a glass of rosé, um, which uh, she didn't invent, but I love the idea of this, like of this category. And, like, and so talk a little bit about like transitioning out of Congregate and into, into your new role and like what... What is driving your mission now that you have? Because you, you clearly have like a wealth of knowledge in the space and you could just like have gone to go work, say, at Apple Arcade or you could have gone to, you know, run mobile publishing inside of a larger publisher, right? Like they, I'm sure you had your options. So um, so why why this startup and like why now? Yeah. I mean, one thing is once you've had one startup, you can become very bad at having a boss. Uh, <laughs> so, I, I can totally speak to this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I was, uh, I had enough self-knowledge to be like, yeah, I, 
I, I, I, I want to be in charge again. Um, I'm, I'm used to being boss lady. Uh, so that was, so that was part of it. Um, but part of it was, I like to make things. Uh, I, you know, I, I love data and understanding people and other things, but you know, I taught yeah. Robin to knit. She yeah, did. Right? I and, went to knit and pearl with Emily. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and I really loved building the platform of Congregate. So I, I, I did the product largely for for congregate and led you know led development and figured out how things should work yeah. and and um, I really enjoyed that and we you know building public the publishing was very fulfilling and interesting but I I miss making things and yeah. then towards the end of my time at Congregate, we started buying some of the studios that we've been working with and I got a chance to work even more closely with them and I was like. I want to make games. Yeah. I want to, you know, I've this kind of like bird's eye view down career in the industry where I started by building a platform, then by building a publisher. And yeah. now I actually want to build make, a company. I want to make a games. Uh, so I wanted to do that. And then when I thought about, okay, what do I want to build? And I was like, I want to make games for myself. I have, um, while I've always played games, um, I have an inner ear problem that makes me very sensitive to camera movement. Yeah. And so essentially modern console games and a lot of PC games make me throw up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's nothing against the games. I just can't play them. Yeah. And so I have, um, you know, played a shit ton of browser games yes. and then, you know, lots and lots of mobile games especially. Uh, and I had a lot of... Um, uh, imposter syndrome for some periods where people were be like, oh, you're an industry veteran, right? And mm -hmm. and I was like, yeah, but I don't know the sequence of Final Fantasy games. Yeah, and like, yeah. there's all sorts of things. I didn't play the Zelda like, Wind Waker game. Yeah. Stuff. And, but then when we were at mobile publishing, like quickly realized that the games that I played the most were the were our biggest hits and that I'm a good proxy for that big mass market. And I think there's, you know, an interesting thing that's sort of developed in game culture where games have become more and more broad. They're not quite as broad as like TV and movies and music where it's literally everybody yeah. um, are consuming it. But it's not that far away no, from that. No, it's very that. close. If you ask someone if they're a gamer, they assume a very specific kind of experience. Right. But if you ask people if they play games, games. almost everyone plays games. Almost fault. everyone plays games. But the games as an industry tends to hmm. attract people who are really passionate about games. And that's a great thing. Yeah. But most of them, almost everybody identifies as a core gamer. Yeah. And I'm this kind of weird, like hatchling who came in sideways, <laughs> who fully falls into the, I play games, but I don't think of myself as a core gamer. Yeah. Um, among other things, because I, I would puke you if would I puke. tried to play, <laughs> to, tried to play um, almost any first person shooter. Yeah. Uh, so I was like, I this is a big audience that is not really represented um, uh, in the game industry well. And I think if I, you know, when you start a game or you start a project, it's important to think about what are you uniquely qualified to do? Yeah. What are you most passionate about? And luckily that was like, these two things are the things that I'm uniquely qualified to do and also really excited about. Yeah. And, you know, while I've talked a lot about numbers and analytics, I believe very deeply that the best games and the, the best anything is made with... Um, uh, love yeah. and enthusiasm and a real understanding of the audience. Yeah. And one thing I do think there's been, um, I think, with free-to-play games and mobile games that uh, there is a lot of development that's over-quantified or mm -hmm. sort of just 
you know, I'm going to copy this game and change 1% and gradually change that. And I think you lose the vision and the heart of a product. And when the most important thing for success is for somebody to love something, for somebody To to care, for it to mean something to them. You you need to bring that, yeah. uh, and and then you optimize it with numbers. Yeah, which is <laughs> which I was gonna say. It makes it so hard for I think a lot of indies. Like I, I will say this: like I want you to be successful, but I don't want your first game to be a huge success and bias you towards thinking that everything that you come up with will hit with the marketplace. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if you are the person that thinks of that one little thing yeah. that really hits, that's like such magic. Like if mm-hmm. it happens to you, just. Mm-hmm double down on that because that's your audience. You found them, keep making games for them, love Mm -hmm. them and they'll love you back. Right. And it's like, it's not, not most games don't hit, but if a game does hit, it's really because you've, you've created that relationship in a way that was meaningful to those people. Yeah. Right. So, uh, so I wanted to make games for that audience and I wanted to make the kind of games that I'm, I'm playing myself and I play games the most when I'm most stressed. So, yeah. you know, if shit is going down at work yeah. or we're having a family crisis, yeah, it's like, um, oh, then, I, then I'm on the couch. <laughs> Maybe there's a basketball game on the background yeah. or, you know, Project One Ray or something like that. And uh, I'm a shout out to Robin. Yeah. And uh, I'm, you know, and I'm playing, you know, puzzle games yeah. or idle games or tower defense games. But there's generally like kind of a rhythm to the games and yeah. a repetitiveness. And like this. Knitting. Like knitting that is um, kind of like this great mix of stimulating and soothing. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it takes your brain down. This is what we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, it's like you have this feeling like your brain is just going to race and race and race and think about the problem mm-hmm. at work or whatever it is. Usually it's a problem yeah. at work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you just like distract yourself with something that's repetitive. I actually think that a lot of core gamers do this too. Yeah, like I, I think know a lot roguelikes. Of, yeah. yeah, a lot of people play roguelikes. That, uh, TFT right now is very popular with some friends of mine that, that use it to sort of control brain activity, I would say, to damp down the activity level. Um, it's just a distracting thing, but it's more engaging than, say, watching a television show yep. where you can space out and suddenly you're worrying about the thing again, right? It's yeah. like it, there's a little bit of goal setting and a little bit of wayfinding you have to do, right? Yeah. Which is uh, oddly why games like Journey did well because like they they give you something to do, but then you can kind of you can get into the rhythm of them, and yeah. it's just, just beautiful enough or just just engaging enough to distract you. And I and I think Journey is a great example of something that while it's you know pretty different from what we're like gonna do, I think that it it gave you such a peaceful environment, like yeah. it just. I, I can see, you know, the figure kind of going through the landscape and it yeah. almost relaxes me to think about it. Yeah. And that that um, kind of soothing environment is something that I think is really important and something I want to I w- I want to think about and explore more. You know, we're we're actually um, so we both live in San Francisco and we talk a lot because we're both basically starting these projects at the same time. And I, I find that when we're talking, you're one of the people that I vibe with most around this idea of relaxing. Mm-hmm. There's a few other people that are doing stuff in this Base Brie Code has been doing some stuff with her new game, and like I think there are a few women founders that are really aware of this, like pastiming, tend and befriend, like all these 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 ideas. Um, have you felt like people are? Do you feel like you're once again in that place where you're seeing ahead of the curve here, or do you feel like you're right in the middle of something? Like, uh, ask me in five years. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you, yeah. I mean, you can never, you know. Uh, I feel like this is a thing that's coming, yeah, and it's going to be happening pretty soon, and that that this group of people that's interested in the sort of common game space or like 
like games that allow you to pass time with friends yeah. is going to be a thing. And I think there's things that are in the broader culture too, like um, like the adult coloring books yes. and like ASM, uh, AM, ASMR. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I, I never get the like <laughs> collection of vowels quite right. Uh, that are that are related, but um, that are related but different. Right. Um, I, well, I and weed being legal in a bunch of places. Let's be honest, <laughs> that's not hurting. <laughs> yeah, people are relaxing yeah. and they're not really that focused. Yeah, I mean, like in in a sort of the physical space. Uh, a puzzle, yeah. like a like a, a jigsaw puzzle, I think has a lot of the same qualities yeah. of like total concentration and yeah. The finder games, I find those those are relatively relaxing. Uh, they drive me crazy. Oh, do they really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love them. I, yeah, they, I find them stressful. So I think that's that's part of it, though, is the different different activities are soothing. soothing. There's nothing that's universally soothing. Like, yeah. um, if I try to meditate, I get it stresses me out. <laughs> but ice skating. Is very right. is my meditation, <laughs> and I meditate, and I don't ice skate. So. Yeah, <laughs> although I did just get a piano, which I found recently. I found really does uh, does calm me down in a way that I didn't even realize anymore. I didn't even remember it from when I was a teenager, but it really does. Just playing the piano, even if I'm just randomly playing the piano and not making up music, but just randomly stroking the keys, it feels good to me to hear it and to feel the keys going down. And I bought a keyboard with really great action because because <laughs> yeah. I was like, I really wanted to feel like a piano. Um, and when you when you get get into one of those modes, it's like, it's nice to feel like you're entertaining yourself. Um, but to have a goal and to feel like you're getting better at it, well, then that's just like, that's icing on the cake, right? Absolutely. Like, oh, I got a thing. Yeah. And if you I like, and then, yeah. And then um, if you're also potentially, you know, joining community or connecting with other people, like yeah. that can take it to another level because a lot of times, you know, you can feel isolated even in a crowded life um, yeah. and it can be um, wonderful to connect to people that you aren't necessarily see seeing every day. Yeah. I've been thinking about this a lot lately too, is this idea that like there's always a point in your life where you want to be social, but you have limits on how much energy or how much time you have. Um, and that might be when you're transitioning from high school into college or when you're transitioning from say elementary school into high school, or it might be after you get married and you have a kid. And like, there are these phases in your life where you want to be social, but for whatever reason, your attention is elsewhere and being able to direct it to the phone and have that be social is a, it's a really nice thing to do for people. I think it's a, it's a kindness that we can perform as designers. So what are you most excited about with this, uh, with this new company? Like, what do you, like, are you, are you, are you obviously building things? You're yeah. going to be hiring and building games. Mm -hmm. And then you're also going to be doing data stuff. Like, where are you going to, what's, where's your, where are you growing? Like, what are some of the areas in which you're going to get to grow? Yeah. So adventure? getting to be like on the ground on game development is really fun for me right now. <laughs> so especially because Congregate by the, you know, had gotten pretty big. And so nobody would show me anything until like it was pretty polished. Like I didn't get to see the ugly prototypes and, yeah. and, and kind of watch that sort of discovery and thought about mechanics and have, have that like really detailed discussion of, you know, how do you make a game? Yeah. Uh, how do you put a game together? So that's really interesting and really fun for me to be um, uh, to be involved with. Now I'm the business lead. Like I'm not, yeah. my co-founder Shelby is the, is the, is the designer and game lead. You know, she's much more the, uh, the vision holder, but I'm the way we've sort of worked it is she's the vision holder on the game, but I'm the vision holder of the audience yeah. and of the market. And so we, I think we have a really great dialogue between 
between those two things yeah. that I think is you know really helpful and interesting for for both of us. Uh, I'd also say you know starting a company for the second time, there's lots of things that are familiar, but I also get to think about them differently and based on your experience, it, based on my experience, and you know put together the team differently and you know. Uh, take things that maybe I took me 10 years to learn and congregate, you know, and start with them um, from scratch. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing is, you know, we're in San Francisco. San Francisco is not a very sustainable place no. to live. <laughs> it's very um, expensive to pay people in San Francisco. And, and very and hard for them. Yeah, and very hard for them to, to continue living there. A lot of people are leaving the Bay Area, uh, which makes me very sad. So we're going to probably be doing a distributed studio. Yeah. And so that's going to be a how do you, you know, how do you make that work yeah. um, is going to be an interesting challenge. And uh, yeah, so, and then I'm also kind of, you know, I've had this great experience of raising investment for Congregate and then and then, and running a business and then, and then doing it again. And then doing it again. Yeah, so I'm trying to keep a certain amount of my time for kind of doing advising and mentoring to other women like um, founders and co-founders. <laughs> well, we're just friends. Um, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, this is the second part, but... Um, you know, I try to, I get a lot of people who, you know, my friend is, is thinking about starting a company. Yeah. Can she talk to you? And, and I, and I do I that do the a same lot. thing. Yeah. And I really enjoy that. And I really enjoy getting to hear about everybody's sort of takes on the market and yeah. what they could make and be a little part of, um, potentially making that It's funny because I was, I was here earlier yesterday. I ended up meeting up with a couple of the people from Hightail and I was talking to, to Chi about like their structure mm -hmm. and she was explaining that yeah we're a 24 7 company we've got 70 employees we're all over the world and just like there's never a time when someone isn't working on Hightail and I was like oh I get it like this is the way it's gonna go and Phenomena's doing the same thing like we've just we've just been hiring people wherever the best people are and saying like you could stay there just come visit occasionally and we'll see you in you know we'll see you in the chats <laughs> we'll see you see you on the discord but it is really changing the way that we make games I yeah. think yeah uh, and another thing that um, you know Shelby and I have talked quite a bit about is how 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 we can make you know game careers um, really sustainable for the long term, and that mm -hmm. includes being you know very how do how how do we be friendly to the different phases of life yes. and things that you need. So um, having kids and yeah, and um, you know going through that for me, I've been dealing with um, mm -hmm. uh, you know kind of parental decline, yeah. which has a you know which has caused you know some disruption and and things. And how do you support people and make yeah. Um, help them be able to continue to make games with like love and attention and also give the love and attention to, to the other families, parts of their lives that yeah. are just important. And I really believe that, you know, complete people make better games. Me and, too. And <laughs> so um, how do you make that work and make it commercially successful and viable right. and really and really right for people? I do think that having the office be distributed helps that because it means that, you know, it makes it more possible to have flexible hours and and do certain other things. Yeah. Um, when you don't, when you're not devoting an, an hour of day, an hour or two hours a day to, to community, yeah. like that gives that brings people a lot of time back into Commuting, their lives. shared meals, like trying to deal with office sickness is a big is a big one. Like I really, we have a very strong policy of don't. Do not come to work if you're ill. Please do not bring your baby's sickness into the office and then spread it to all the other families. Yes. Nobody wants a shitting, screaming, crying baby. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> wants to be that person. So yeah. keep it at home. Mm -hmm. And I think that 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 just even that alone, like the amount of 
uh, sick days that get reduced, the stress of the commute it gets reduced. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of benefits. Um, at Dice Europe, I saw a talk about a studio that had gone from being in an office to completely distributed, and they said that it made them more productive and more profitable. So yeah, we definitely I definitely think that that's true. So growing the growing the studio in this new way, um, being able to be on the ground with games, and then and then I think probably you're also like have a, a it'll be a really different kind of business, right? Like yes. so you'll have you'll be working with a bunch of people like artists and stuff yep. that like. Like weren't necessarily, you know, the the people surrounding you at Concrete. Yeah, right? the um, uh, you know, we had a little bit of that because we did have internal studios mm-hmm. and some 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 partnerships. But yeah, I get I get to have that access. It's also just a much simpler business. Like we, yeah, the um, you know, Congregate, We had you know, I think it was thirty thousand devs from one hundred and twenty five <sighs> countries. Jeez. The tax issues alone. Oh gosh, yeah, Emily. I just, I think I just fell out of my chair. Hold on. Yeah. Uh, Ow. The, <gasps> uh, oh, I know. just, I literally, my brain just melted. Right, and then you know, uh, you know, and then on the platform, we could, we could handle it certain ways, and yeah. we could do a lot of engineering. But on mobile publishing, you know, we're getting ad revenue from all these different platforms. Um, there's yeah, we're, got a lot of accounting and um, ad networks, etc. I did so much accounting. Yeah, <laughs> I did so much finance stuff. I know I, if you if you have random tax related questions, <laughs> you can like start with me first, and I can give you some some guidance. I'm 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 I'm, I'm excited for the day when my knowledge is out of date. <laughs> um, oh, that makes so much sense. I've been to part of two of two different public companies: one under U.S. law, one under European law. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, so you know all about the yeah. All so about the different so one of one of the things I'm really excited for is like how much. A self-publishing studio. It's it's a, it's a simpler, more focused business. business, and yeah. money um, comes in. It goes to people's salaries. Games come out, and then either they make money or they don't. Yeah. <laughs> and yes. you just keep doing that. You just keep putting money into the front end, and yes. hopefully it poops out money in the other end, and that's it. It's yes. a sim. It's a very simple system. It just yeah. eats the money, and then hopefully it poops out more money. Yes. That'll be so great, Emily. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. It was really great yeah. hanging out with you. My pleasure. All right. Thank you for joining us for the Game Maker's Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org.